Brits abroad have a reputation for causing a stir. There's the headline makers for the right reasons. McManaman at Real, Wright Phillips at New York Red Bull, Tamori at Milan. But there's also those like a fish out of water. Dale Jennings at Bayern and David Bentley at FC Rostov, to name a couple. This episode celebrates the British footballers with a wanderlust and delves deeper into the often obscure teams they represented. Arthur, welcome to the Brits Abroad 11. Thanks very much, Ben. It's great to be here. Um, I loved hearing about that Dale Jennings story again. He was Mm, uh, a real real pioneer for young Englishmen moving to the Bundesliga. Yeah, And uh, I, I remember actually he was playing for Tranmere in League One against us that season and uh, suddenly to get the call up to, uh, to to join the German giants was a, a huge story at the time. Truly, truly remarkable. Um, I believe actually a friend of the show, Joe Alexander, was so excited about Dale Jennings that he bought the URL dalejennings.co.uk <laughs> in the hope of selling it on for big money. Um, That's very Joe. Yeah, that flopped. Uh, Arthur, apparently you've forgotten your microphone today. Yeah, I'm I'm actually at my parents currently mm. in the countryside and uh, I've forgotten my microphone. I also forgot my computer, so okay. I'm on my mum's laptop as well. Yeah, I had to re-download Zoom or I had to download the, wow. the latest version of Zoom to, to get on this call today. Yeah. Um, but I've got there. It might sound quite tinny, but here I am. This is going really well, isn't it? This this episode actually might be a bit like me having a conversation with a kind of non-league tannoy system. Um, that's it's kind of what I'm imagining. Yeah. yeah. But we're so, employing a 4-4-2 formation here, a very British formation, um, to, to talk about some of the great names or very niche names who've made journeys overseas to play for niche sides. And uh, if you have any thoughts at home, please do get in touch at 11pod. That's the word and not the number. Right, Arthur, I'm in goal. Well, not me personally, but rather (laughs) a Brit abroad, Luke Steele. Yes, Luke Steele, former Man U trainee, I believe. Oh, great knowledge, Arthur. Yeah. Love that. I used to Uh, like signing him on Football Manager. Yeah. Let's delve deeper into Luke's career. Um, A six foot two goalkeeper born in Peterborough, uh, signed for Man United as a youngster in 2002, but never played for the Red Devils. In fact, his career only really took off in earnest in 2009, when he enjoyed five seasons in regular football in the championship with Barnsley, having previously impressed on loan for the club in their infamous 2008 run to the FA Cup semi-finals. Absolutely huge. I I also don't think I've ever heard anyone really seriously refer to them as the Red Devils as well. (laughs) (laughs) It was a kind of unnecessary throw in of that nickname, wasn't it? You're like, you just wanted some variety from Manchester United. Exactly. The Manchester Reds. Um, he could have been playing for the Belgian national side (laughs) (laughs) Um, but Steele's career um, it took an unexpected turn in 2014 Arthur aged 30 uh, and this was after relegation from the second tier with Barnsley Steele took up the option of release from his contract to join Greek giants Panathinaikos 
What? I know. What a weird bit of scouting that the Greek giants were looking at, at those who were relegated from the championship. It's absolutely ridiculous. I don't think, you know, English goalkeepers moving abroad is a particularly well-trod path. It's not, really. We've had David James, Joe Hart. They're probably the most famous, but but really there weren't that many to choose from in goal here. Uh, remarkably, Steele was often first choice for Panathinaikos. In his first two seasons in Greece, he played 85 times, including eight times in the Europa League. Panathinaikos finished second both seasons. Uh, he played alongside Michael Essien, Maladen Petric and Daniel Pranjic. That was a list that got kind of consecutively worse. Um, <laughs> he was so impressive that uh, on the 16th of September 2016, he was included in UEFA Europa League's Team of the Week. To some extent, he was following in the footsteps of um, another UK goalkeeper, Roy Carroll. Roy had joined Olympiakos just a few years earlier. And, and so Steele was kind of keeping the good name of UK goalkeepers alive. And actually, interestingly, Arthur, Steele is also a proponent of the Jan Collar move. If you think back to uh, the Super Subs 11. Yeah. In the last few years, Steele has transitioned from goalkeeper to striker following a return to England. Wow. He trialled this change of position in Sunday league football and, when successful, made the move to ninth-tier deeping Rangers. Uh, and interestingly, for this Brits Abroad eleven, he cites his time in Greece as a catalyst for this positional change, saying, when I went to Panathinaikos, we'd play out a lot more from the back, and that really suited me. And that was when the bug started coming back again. It was never the plan just to change position age 36, but I've done that. And I've enjoyed every minute. I wonder how many years he'll have as a plundering striker in the ninth tier of English football. Yeah, I guess, you know, deeping Rangers going strong. We've got Luke Steele up front. Um, I don't know who his ideal strike partner would be if it was a goalkeeper. Maybe a kind of little and large with Gabor Karai. I was thinking, um, yeah, I was thinking sort of Barosh-esque stature. Yeah, um, I, I guess you'd probably have to. Um, who was that very short Mexican goalkeeper you mentioned? Jorge Campos from the Little Okay, Lions. yes, that would be interesting. At, at Deeping Rangers, that feels like an unusual move for Campos. An iconic duo. Yeah, and I also really enjoyed the fact that you referred to his stature as Barosh-esque. That's got to be <laughs> the most obscure kind of comparison that's ever been drawn. Yeah, but didn't we establish that Barosh wasn't even that small? It's he just wasn't that small, no. I, yeah. in, in many ways, I think he was taller than Campos. But, um, he probably was. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for that anyway, Arthur. And Luke Steele is in goal. Okay, I've, I've got word that we're going to write back now, Arthur, which breaks from the usual 11 norm. So I'm, I'm all a quiver. But who, who is right back? We like shaking things up. You know, these Brits have shook things up by moving abroad in their career. Mm. So here we are at right back already. That and was a, a very on... loose segue. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Andre Wisdom. Oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah, Andre. Wow. Yeah. It, uh, and actually a Liverpool Youth Academy product to go alongside Correct. Luke. Correct. He made his his debut at Liverpool as a 19-year-old under Brendan right. In a 5-3 victory against young boys in the Europa League. What a great first game. Yes, absolutely. Um, He'd go on to make his premiership debut 
in a game against Norwich City, 5-2 away win. He's really racking up the goals in these games. That was a Luis Suarez hat-trick, which was pretty par for the course against Norwich at the time. A loan would follow the next season at Championship side Derby, where he would impress, guiding them to the playoff final. Um, Sadly, they'd be defeated by QPR. Whilst he was there, he was involved in a pretty high-profile incident that made newspaper headlines. Um, He got his £100,000 Porsche stuck in a muddy ditch, um, which was a bit unfortunate. (laughs) Essentially, the the sat-nav had basically got him lost on the way to training, and he was forced to abandon his car when it became submerged in the pit in the middle of a remote woods uh, it was three miles from the nearest main road. Quite how he got himself there was, wow. was interesting. That was incredible. Um, he played for England at various youth levels. He was part of the team that won the Euro Under-17 Championships, uh, appointed captain of the Under-21 side in 2013. Um, however, in his first game in that role, he was sent off for kicking an opponent and was subsequently given a four-match suspension after which he did not return to the squad. So uh, okay. a real, uh, real baptism of fire in the captaincy role for him. He ended up at Red Bull Salzburg. What? You're kidding. Yeah, yeah. really random. In picking this as a lone destination, spoke to a few former Salzburgians in two of his current teammates at Liverpool. This absolutely baffles me that these two were at the same time teammates of his at Liverpool. Okay. Sadio Mane. Right. And Alex Manninger. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is mad. This is Mane's, absolutely mad. Mane's 15 years Manninger's junior. I um, just don't... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Incredible. So they, they both played at Liverpool in 2017. Um, But of his move, he said, being in a different country doesn't bother me or make me feel nervous one (laughs) bit. It's the same as if I was to go 10 minutes up the road to Manchester or an hour down the road to Birmingham. People think, oh, the Austrian league, the quality is not going to be there or I'm not going to improve. But I've come here. It's I've seen the quality and I know what the league is about. It's a good opportunity to learn a different culture and a different style of play. There's a vibe where everyone's willing to make sacrifices for the team even if it's just a pat on the back or a come on, mate, or whatever they say in German, everyone's on it. <laughs> so he, yeah. he settled in pretty quickly. This was just a season-long loan, but it was a really fine campaign for the Austrian side. He played 24 times, helped them to the league title, which, to be honest, isn't exactly impressive for them because they're more dominant in their country than Bayern Munich are in Germany. Yeah, um, Salzburg absolutely wanted to make the deal permanent. Uh, their sporting director praised his importance both on and off the field. And we love off the field importance here. And yeah, there. that's what we're all about. Um, but yeah, in the end, Derby tented him back to Pride Park uh, in 2017, where he signed permanently for them. 107 appearances later, he's now without a club since the end of the 2021 season. Mm. And at 29... I mean, that's quite a young retirement, but I guess he probably is considering that that route now. I'm not quite sure why, because the latest stints he had were at Derby, where by all accounts he was reasonably impressive in the championship, mm. and um, and at Salzburg, where he impressed again. So I don't know quite why no one's willing to give him a punt. 
That's really, really bizarre. Um, I can't believe you found that. There really can't be many British players who've made that trip to Austria to play their football. Um, I mean, I've been to Salzburg. It's beautiful. It's got a lovely Christmas market. But (laughs) as a footballing decision, that's such a bizarre one. Fair play to Andre, and I'm glad he got something out of it. Let's shimmy across to the other side of the defence for a moment and talk about Scott Minto. Oh, why do I? I know the name Scott Minto very well, but I can't picture any clubs he played for. I don't know why. I think you would know him best, Arthur, because he's been a consistent appearer on Sky Sports match day coverage of the championship. Yes. Um, So until recently. I do watch that all the time. Yes. Scott, a big TV personality. Um, But he was a dependable left back back in the day. Um, Quite decent, actually, but. I would say with no notable attribute to pick out about him. Nevertheless, he enjoyed a fine start to his career playing Premier League football with Chelsea um, after time as a regular for Charlton Athletic. The no discernible attributes thing makes me feel he would be he would be perfect in the did a job 11. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think he would fit in really nicely there. But actually, again, like Luke Steele. His career took this unbelievable turn and he ended up abroad. At the age of just 25, Minto decided it was time to move to Portugal. He joined Benfica in 1997 and reflecting on the decision, he said, there weren't that many English people out there in abro- abroad at the time, but I've always liked things foreign, whatever that means. Funnily enough, my wife is Colombian. <laughs> I don't know what that's got to do with it. I've always, liked... Mike thing <laughs> I've always liked the nice weather and the nice food. And Portugal certainly had that. When a club of the size of Benfica want you, I just thought this was too good an opportunity to turn down. And you may never get an opportunity like this to play abroad. Go for it and see what happens. So I did. And it went exceptionally well. I feel like Scott Minto's definition of exceptionally well is perhaps a little <laughs> bit of an overstatement. Like it, it went, it went okay. It, he he remained in Lisbon for eighteen months, uh, helping a side that contained Nuno Gomez and Jao Pinto to a second and then third place finish. Um, but he had a nasty injury which kind of curtailed his playing time. He did impress another European suitor in Valencia with his wholehearted displays. And and interestingly, actually, Minto wasn't the only Brit to join the Lisbon club in the late 90s. Whilst Minto was there, Graham Souness took over as the manager and went on a shopping spree for decidedly average British players. He signed Brian Dean, the scorer of the first Premier League goal. He signed Welsh midfielder Mark Pembridge, who played for Everton and Fulham. And he signed Dean Saunders, a new and significantly less potent foil to Nuno Gomez. But it was a failed experiment. And actually, out of all of the British names, Minto was probably the only one to emerge with any credit. Exceptionally well, maybe not, but actually a reasonable spell. uh, And so probably worthy of a place in our Brits Abroad eleven. Yeah, it really is. And and it's a tantalising prospect, the idea of Minto and Pinto. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. I hadn't noticed it. Love that. (laughs) It's like Stokes and Wokes in the cricket. It is. He's meant to be. Yeah. Um, But I'm just looking. He he actually said that 
the, the the talents of Nuno Gomez and Jao Pinto did pale in comparison to a guy he used to room with called Jose Calado. Okay. Was, um, he said apparently he had the best season out of everyone in my first year there. Centre midfielder with an excellent left foot, right foot, passing and tackling. So quite why I haven't heard of Jose Calado is... Um, is really uh, telling. What we do know, though, is that when Minto said something was exceptionally good or exceptionally well, what he really means is they were fine. Let's cover off the centre-back positions. Um, if you are a regular listener to the show, thank you so much, first of all. Um, you will know that a position is up for grabs and you get to decide who is in our 11. One of those positions, well, it is the centre-back this time round. So there will be a poll on Twitter and we've got nominations coming in from some friends and guests on today's show. Uh, but the other centre-back is uh, for your reckoning, Arthur. Yes, it's time to talk about Liam Ridgewell. <laughs> is there ever a time when it's not appropriate to talk about Liam Ridgewell? Well, bizarrely, we deemed it not appropriate to talk about him during the MLS 11. The yeah, MLS sorts. that would um, be a good he- fit. Yeah, he did have a stint over there that I will talk about in due course. This is an Aston Villa youth prospect who established himself in the first team at a fairly young age. Uh, He made the unforgivable move then over the divide to Birmingham Mm. and played 152 times over seven years for them. He endured two relegations, but also a 12-match unbeaten streak in the Premier League where they finished ninth, the club's best result since the league started in 1992 and he won the Carling Cup in 2011. So I would say it was undoubtedly a mixed period for Liam Ridgewell at Birmingham. I did actually ask my friend George Smiley, who's a big Villa fan, whether he's considered popular at one and not the other. And he right. just kind of responded and said he's not really liked to either. So, Great. so there we go. Um, and actually that's very in keeping with a Sun newspaper headline I read in 2012, or I read recently, but it was from 2012, which described him as the vilest footballer in Britain. What did he do to deserve that mantle? There's a picture of him squatting over a loo, wiping his backside with a wad of £20 notes. I mean, that is quite vile. That is vulgar. Liam. That's disgusting. You're better than that. It was, I mean, he described it as a stunt to wind up a friend but fans in this country really didn't like him as a result and I don't like him actually as a result I don't like him either I'm glad I think we're, gonna have to, we're gonna have to brush that under the carpet for now as we talk about yeah. a 30th birthday jaunt to Las Vegas uh, right. where he ended up visiting Portland for the first time he said the very first game I watched they were playing FC Dallas and they were 2 0 down at half time. I couldn't hear myself think when the players were coming in at half time for the fans singing, not shouting or chucking things as I was used to, but singing. I thought, yeah, that could work for me. And so he signed. He, he, he thought he'd start a stint out in America. And mm. um, it was a very successful stint. Twice he reached the MLS Cup final, winning it once as an all star in 2015 Ooh. on his way to amassing 97 appearances. They're an interesting club, Portland. I'm not really sure how much we talked about them on the MLS pod, but they have a massive rivalry with Seattle Sounders. I enjoyed reading about the banner war they had, um, slowly one-upping each other with a bigger and bigger banner. 
Um, but the timbers unveiled a 20,000 square foot, 1,500 pounds in weight banner that required 66 riggers to hoist. And that was in honour of club legend Clive Charles. What, I mean, honestly, there's pictures of it and it's just huge. It, just, yeah. it takes up one entire end of their ground, which I just think absolutely wonderful. They're, um, they're a club that don't do anything in half measures, do they? I mean, they've taken their Timbers nickname to the most extreme. Uh, I believe after goals, they have a lumberjack that kind of shaves off part of a stump with a yep. chainsaw. They, they do. Um, until 2008, it was Timber Jim. And it's, okay. now, it's now Timber Joey. Um, oh. Okay. So, yeah, essentially, you've got, you've got a 12-foot log, and every time they scored a goal at Providence Park. Mm. Um, yeah, a slab of wood is sawed off. It, it, it feels to some extent like a 12-foot log has, has followed Liam Ridgewell throughout his career in terms of the headlines <laughs> he gets. Very good. Chelsea free kick. And Minto hits it. 1-1. Straight through a ruck of players. It's not just players that move abroad during their career, managers too. So uh, we've we've come up with a unique way to pick a British manager to steward our Brits Abroad eleven. I have two candidates lined up, Arthur, and you're going to play the interviewer for this segment. I'm going to be answering the questions as if I am a famous British manager who did manage abroad during his career. And ultimately you're going to decide which of these two you would like to employ. Uh, and that will be our Brits abroad 11 manager. How does that sound? Yeah, it sounds very exciting. I um, I actually do have a manager in mind that I would like to anoint. Managers. Oh. Once you decide, I'll throw this guy's hat in the ring as well. Okay. He, he obviously didn't make the shortlist. Of it, well, he might included. Have. Yeah, we, we don't know. We don't know. We um, might be on the same wavelength. Yeah, 100%. Well, at 11pod, if you uh, have your own opinions on who we should employ as manager, um, please do get in touch. We love to hear from people. Let's let's go, shall we? Hello, I'm managerial candidate number one, Arthur. Hi, thanks very much for coming in. You know, obviously, we think long and hard about who's going to replace mm. Jose Sanchez Gallardo, who was yes. our manager. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell me about a project that you're particularly proud of? Well, um, at Aston Villa in 1998, I managed them to the top of the Premier League table at the halfway stage. I demonstrated excellent man management skills to get the best out of Dion Dublin, Paul Merson and Julian Joachim. Uh, And a year later, we'd compete in the FA Cup final. Could I ask what happened in the second half of the season? (laughs) It it did (laughs) decline somewhat, but uh, I was... Still a a fan favourite at the club. Thanks um, very much. Did you have to tackle any adversity during that? Yes, I did. Um, That would be a Maccabi Ahi Nazareth. Um, (laughs) I sparked turmoil when I led them to relegation from the Israeli top division in 2009. Uh, Not my confidence. And it took surviving relegation in charge of FC Kairat in Kazakhstan to perk me up. Uh, And it paid off. I returned to my best and led Chennai to their second Indian Super League title. 
That's fantastic. I mean, in a job interview, I wouldn't expect you to uh, to volunteer a mm. relegation on your on your CV. I would have expected it to be a relegation avoidance. But yeah, I'm yeah, very honest as yeah. a manager. Yeah, good. That's that's I I value that a lot. Mm. And tell me about um, what you think you could bring to this role. Uh, well, I, I have first hand knowledge of every position across the park. During my playing days, I became the only player to play in every outfield position, wearing every number from 2 to 11 at Aston Villa. That's a really impressive thing. Thank you. Um, well, well done. I'm, I'm happy to send you a copy of my CV and portfolio of work, if that would be helpful. It would be. If you could just send it to my secretary, that would be much appreciated. Okay, no problem. Thanks. Bye. Really good to see you. Goodbye. Well, that was an impressive interview, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I don't actually have any idea who that is. I was mm. trying to think of who would be managing Dion Dublin at, at Villa. We've just heard a knock on the door, Arthur. Um, and it's time for managerial candidate number two. Hi. Hello. How's, how's, Hi. Your, how's your weekend been? Oh, it's been it's been great. I haven't prepared an answer for that. It's been <laughs> really, really great. Have you been analysing scouting data of certain clubs? No. No, okay. I haven't. No. See, I value that a lot, so oh. I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll we'll see how this goes. <laughs> cool, <laughs> cool. Um, can you tell me about a project that you're particularly proud of? Uh, yeah, I can actually. Oh, um, I I managed Sunderland through an incredible change of fortunes. Uh, in 1995, I joined with the club battling relegation to the third tier. Uh, a year later, we were promoted to the Premier League, and the fans were singing a song about me to the tune of "Daydream Believer." Some years later, we'd finished seventh in the top tier under my stewardship, the club's highest ever finish. Oh, wow. That's, um, Put that in your pretty... pipe and smoke it. It's <laughs> <laughs> not the way to treat a future employer, maybe. Can you tell me about a time that you battled adversity? Uh, yeah. It doesn't include relegation. It might. Um, <laughs> I managed big names like Nicholas Anelka and Freddie Lindbergh when managing Mumbai City. We finished in the bottom half, which was really disappointing. And I was replaced the next season by Anelka himself. Um, but I did some soul searching and realised that the Union Jack bandana I used to wear on the touchline was not doing me any favours and commanding respect. So uh, since I, I've never worn that again. Yeah, I, I, I would actually advise against wearing mm. that because in our region here, we don't actually like Brits. No, much. it was a tough so... lesson to learn. Yeah, I do feel that if I were to employ you or actually the other chap that I've just been interviewing, the oh, okay. fans will rail against you from day one. This is a very competitive interview process, it seems. Uh, can you tell me about what you think that you could bring to this role other than your proud Britishness? Well, I have international management experience as well as domestic manager managerial experience. Um, so I know how to bear the pressure of a nation. In 2008, I was named manager of Thailand. I struggled with pronouncing names, so I just called players by their squad numbers. But I did win the TNT Cup against North Korea and Vietnam before I left. So that's silverware, right? Yeah, it is. And Thailand is, yeah, actually where our club's based. So. Oh, fantastic. Well, I do know how to get round Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Really grateful for the opportunity. You're very welcome. Um, and I've made my decision. Oh, actually. man. Arthur, who are you going for? Manager one or manager two? 
I'm going to go for manager two simply because I think I've worked out who it is. And I quite oh, like. okay, okay. <laughs> who do you think it was? I think it's Peter Reed. It is. Well done, yes. Peter I knew, Reed. I knew about the Thailand stint. He is the new manager of our Brits Abroad Eleven. I absolutely love that. It's going to be hard letting down managerial candidate number one. He hasn't been yeah, in work I for a little while. Who that was? Who was it? It was John Gregory. Oh, John Gregory. Yeah. Oh. He'll be gutted. He will be gutted. Uh, I mean, FC Kairat might take him back. I think the nail in his coffin was the, you know, offering up relegation as an adversity because I don't want a relegation on the CV. Mm. Um, You know, it's it's how how we roll. I know. Um, The other name I would have liked to throw into the ring was Roy. Roy Hodgson. Yeah. He's got to be one of the most international managers. I mean, he had... Malmo, Neuchatel in Switzerland, Grasshoppers, Udinese, Viking. Um, he's managed various international sides as well. I, I feel like he would be great, great. Yeah, uh, he, he would have been well. good. Obviously, we got Moisey. Um, yeah. The other one I, I considered doing was John Toshak. He actually <laughs> managed Iranian side Tractor Sazi about three years ago. Well, I've hung up my boots as impersonating John Gregory and Peter Reid, now that we have Peter as manager. Uh, And the left midfield slot is mine. It is Stephen Pearson. Hmm. Hmm. Is it ringing (laughs) bells? I mean, I'm I'm actually always a bit surprised that Stephen Pearson is less known um, than than perhaps he should be. Uh, He's a six foot one, powerful wide man. Who I'm is pleased he's not Amazonian. He's not Amazonian, no. I think you have to be like six foot three to be Amazonian. Okay. Um, but he was known for scoring the £60 million goal. Uh, that's the winner in the 2007 Championship playoff final for Derby County against West oh. Brom. Um, oh. And that meant that the Scotsman did get to play in the Premier League the following year, although his side did register the lowest points tally of all time. Um, but I don't really want to talk about his impact on Derby County, nor his impact on Scottish football, where he won five trophies, including two SBLs with Celtic. Rather, I want to talk about his impact on Indian football. The Indian Super League started in 2014 with the aim of growing the sport of football in India and increasing its exposure in the country. Each season lasted just three months from October to December and matches were held daily with the league containing just eight teams. To elevate the league's profile, high wages were paid to several marquee players in the inaugural season. So playing in the Indian Super League were David Trezeguet, Luis Garcia, David Perez and Alessandro Del Piero. Kerala Blasters took David James and Michael Chopra and for reasons totally unknown, also decided they needed Stephen Pearson in their inaugural squad. And what a success! Pearson was a mainstay of the Blasters midfield, the highest appearance maker in 2014. Kerala finished fourth, qualifying for the end of season playoffs, and then Pearson's moment. In the second leg of the playoff semi final, the game tied three all on aggregate deep into extra time. Pearson latched on to Jingan's lob. The Scotsman drove towards goal and despite pressure from three Chennaiin players, came up with a superb finish to send his side into the final. 
He ripped off his shirt, exposing his pale white frame and peeled off to celebrate with Ian Hume. Pearson <laughs> was Hume. Ian Hume. Ian Hume was a Leicester City legend. Wasn't he, he was. He was Canadian. Otherwise, he might have got a place in this 11. <laughs> but Pearson was the hero. Kerala would ultimately lose in the final to ATK. But that said, Pearson did have the last laugh. He joined ATK two years later and won the Indian Super League with them, again teaming up with Ian Hume. What a pair. And um, I, I liked this pick because I felt like Pearson was obscure and relatively unknown for his stint in the Premier League, but actually played such a pivotal role in the, in the first steps towards the Indian Super League becoming a, a decent force in Asian football. Who's alongside Stephen Arthur? Yeah, it's David Vaughan. <laughs> Who's he played for? Um, well, you mentioned John, Cho- John Toshak earlier. Yeah. And uh, John was actually the man who signed him at Real Sociedad. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yes That's way. Crazy. That is um, crazy. Yeah. So David will be remembered mostly by fans in this country for Blackpool's 2010-11 season, where they entertained everyone on their way to doing the double over Liverpool, beating Spurs. They ultimately did slip to 19th and relegation, but Ian Holloway's side were just really great to watch. So I Mm. have fond memories of that side, as do you from uh, from your pick of Ludovic Silvestre in the the Moneyball 11. Oh, yeah. So... What a player, what a player. Um, Incredibly, actually, Charlie Adam scored 13 Premier League goals in that season, but he was gazumped to Blackpool Player of the Year by David Vaughan. Really? How insane is that? 13 goals from midfield, prompting a a transfer to Liverpool the next year, and he's not even the club's Player of the Year. 13 goals for Blackpool, who were relegated, should be sort of Premier League Player of the Year level. It's mental. Oh, Vaughan. Anyway. Uh, Ian Holloway uh, described him as a proper midfield player because he can do all of it. He does it in an unsung way and in such an efficient way that sometimes people don't notice. But I notice week in, week out that Dave isn't far off the best player I've ever had. <laughs> wow. <laughs> High praise. Yeah. He'd begun his career at Crew under the tutelage of Dario Gradi and was soon wowing the fans with his excellent array of short and long box office passes and tough tackling, earning the nickname that surely is given to any good Welsh footballer. Uh, I'm going to go with the Welsh Pirlo. Oh, no, mate. It's the Welsh Wizard. Oh, the Welsh Wizard, of course. Yeah, (laughs) makes sense. Then came his Brit Abroad adventure. As they say, he ended up in... San Sebastian at Real Sociedad, who were managed by fellow Welshman Chris Coleman, who had been recommended for the role by Toshak. So I actually said Toshak signed him, but Toshak recommended him. Um, (laughs) And they signed Vaughan for £300,000. Toshak was Vaughan's manager at Wales at the time. Vaughan said, John Toshak lives in San Sebastian, so it's likely he'll be watching several of Sociedad's games. I could not ask for a better chance to impress the Wales manager. Wow. Although Real Sociedad had just been relegated, they were one of the favourites to win promotion from the Segunda Division. Uh, he immediately began learning the language. He moved into an apartment near the beach, 
at a far cry from his previous home in Nantwich. (laughs) (laughs) And things started well for him. Uh, He continued to blossom as he became a regular starter under the Coleman regime. The team went on a nine-game unbeaten run between October and January, but the downturn in Vaughan's fortunes began with the resignation of Chris Coleman, uh, something that had been on the cards since November when club president Marie de la Peña departed the club. Shortly after, a new president entered the club and Coleman walked, citing conflict of views about the future of the club. Vaughan didn't play for Sociedad again and departed at the end of the season after just nine appearances and one goal. Real Sociedad finished a disappointing fourth and missed out on promotion to La Liga by one place. I, I, I do firmly believe that if he'd been given a chance that season, he would have been a big success. Uh, indeed, Villarreal came close to signing him from Blackpool later in his career, so he clearly made an impression on Spanish football. He wasn't Sociedad's only noteworthy Brit. Dalian Atkinson, former Ipswich, Sheffield Wednesday and Villa striker, also had a very productive 12-goal season spell there. Also had a very productive 12-goal, one-season spell there in 1990. And I think it must be something about San Sebastian. It's a lovely city. It, it really is. is I think that's where the Royals go on holiday, actually. But the thought of David Vaughan <laughs> playing for Real Sociedad, I just can't, I can't get enough of that. That's brilliant. He, he's a very underappreciated footballer, I think. That's just fantastic. What a find. Love that. That's what this podcast is all about. At 11 pod with praise for Arthur, please. Um, alongside David Vaughan in centre midfield is Vinny Samways. Is it, well, he played abroad. He did, yeah. A five for eight central midfielder. Technically adept, but a little bit safe. He was known as Vinny Sideways in some quarters. <laughs> he came through at Tottenham Hotspur. He won the FA Cup with Tottenham in 1991 and he helped them reach the semi-finals of the competition in 93. He was a regular player in the side which reached the quarter-finals of the European Cup Winners' Cup during the 1991-92 season. But despite being one of their own, Samways was not as much of a hero at Spurs as he was at UD Las Palmas. Oh my God, are you joking? I'm not joking, no. You I'm must not. be joking, Ben. I am not joking, Arthur. Please. I insist. <laughs> UD Las Palmas compete in the Spanish league system, but they're based in the Canary Islands. Uh, and this makes them one of the most isolated professional football clubs in Europe, mm-hmm. since they play their away games on the distant Spanish mainland. They signed Samways for £700,000 in '96, and it wasn't a great start. He was sent off just 13 minutes into his debut. And this would become a fairly regular occurrence in Spain for the midfield hatchet man. His petulant, aggressive style, which was very much in contrast to what we saw in the UK, led to hatred from opposition fans who nicknamed him El Giri, meaning foreign scum. Wow. Nice nickname. Made made an impression, at Mm. least. Uh, but Las Palmas fans loved Samways for his wholehearted approach. Uh, a group of fans insisted on bringing a British flag to every home match in his honour, going so far to name their fan club after him. The reasoning for such adulation can be seen in the way teammate Paquito Ortiz states Samways acted differently to other foreign players in Spain. 
giving his all from the beginning and not needing a period to settle in. He played in Las Palmas for seven years. He led them, he captained them, he took them to a Copa del Rey semi-final and he got them promoted to La Liga. He was playing alongside Rivaldo, Clivert, Raul. He was loved and idolised. And to tell us more, here is Matt Rains. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, he runs a Las Palmas UK fan account. He's a big name in Las Palmas fan clubs. Let's hear what he thought of Samways. As far as I remember, he came over at a bad time in his career in terms of um, you know, not, not doing so well in England, wanted a bit of a change. Um, I, I don't know how the move came about. I don't know who initiated the idea. But what I do know is that the fans of the club, he he, he is a legend. Um, he is the only Englishman to ever play for the club. I think he holds the record for the quickest yellow card in the club's history on his debut, something like six minutes in. Um, and I, he, he's just loved. I think he's just a, a heart on sleeve, leave everything on the pitch, show the passion. Um, and yeah, he's, like I say, he's just revered by everybody. Um, the club know him well, the fans think the world of him. Um, and yeah, he, he, he came to us at a time when, when we needed somebody of that calibre and of that style, and he delivered and more. Well, there we go from the man himself. I mean, Samway's adoration for the club was so enduring that he was involved in a North American consortium trying to buy the club in 2018. He just absolutely bloody loved UD Las Palmas. And, and who um, does? Yeah, yeah, frankly, everyone does now. Thank you, yeah. Vinny. Well, Matt does. Certainly. Matt likes them, yeah. yeah. We all like them. We do. And joining Vinny, playing in the slightly unnatural role for him, at right midfield, and that's just because I wanted to slot him in, really. Yeah. Is is Nigel Quasi. Nigel Quasi. I used to call him Quashy for quite a yeah. long time, and then I realised that was wrong. I was fortunate in, um, obviously, he played for Southampton, so I heard his name on the commentary. Right. So I, yeah. I understood that he was a Quasi at a very young age. Um I mean, Kwashi Kwarteng. Kwashi Kwarteng, yeah. It's, it's, got, it's got a ring to it, hasn't it? I, I actually had no idea Kwasi played abroad. Yeah, he was uh, an English-born 14-cap Scottish international midfielder known for his tough tackling mm. and perennial relegation battles. Yes. Um, did Nigel Kwasi's career actually consist of anything other than sitting devastated in the middle of a Premier League pitch <laughs> post-relegation? <laughs> <laughs> that iconic image that I didn't realise was in the back of my mind, but now it is. Yeah, he suffered four relegations. Um, Quasi was such an unlucky charm that Portsmouth actually sold him to us just to ensure that Southampton <laughs> got relegated. Um, it's surprising, therefore, that I found a Guardian article from 2007 that said, <laughs> that said, Hammers target Quasi as man with metal for relegation fight. I mean, I can't think of anyone who's got less metal for that fight. <laughs> like, oh, Nige. At West Ham, he desperately tried to equal Herman Herodison's five relegations as they won none of his eight appearances. But sadly, Carlos Tevez turned up to thwart Quasi's plans and save West Ham. Um, my recollections of the man was that he was pretty damn terrible. Okay. Um, 
he was signed by Red Knapp and and was just just pretty pretty rubbish. Um, but a lovely guy. I, yeah, I, but he. You seem quite unsure about that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't confirm on whether he's lovely or not, but I can confirm that he ended up in Icelandic football. Really? Yeah, I'm trying to work out why he ended up there, and perhaps it's because of former West Ham chairman Egert Magnusson. Okay. Maybe there was some, some sort of Icelandic influence passed on to him. Um, but he was appointed player assistant manager at second tier side. Bear with me. He protofelag rich So yeah, have you got that one? Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. Um, Good. Thanks. However, when Andre Martinson was sacked with the team bottom of the table four months later, he was made interim boss. Uh, okay. He moved then in January 2013 to B.I. Bolangarvik, oh. where he also served as player assistant for three seasons before calling time on a varied career. Mm. Um, I can't really find much information on whether he was a success in Iceland. Mm. I just found it completely baffling how he ended up out there, really. Bizarrely, the way was trailblazed by Tommy Amiobi who played there in 2011, scoring 11 goals. And another alumnus was Scottish former Livingston footballer, David Sinclair, who spent Mm. some time at B.I. Bolangarvik under Quasi. And he said, he was there, but we didn't exactly bond. There was a bit of a big fish in a small pond mentality with him. He liked to be in charge. Don't get me wrong, he's not a bad guy. There we go. Oh, lovely guy. Lovely there we go. Guy. We got we got the we got the got the verdict on his personality. Yeah, lovely guy. But there was no socializing with him or anything like that, despite the Scotland connection. And Sinclair soon left the club after reportedly realizing he'd have to work in a fish processing plant in the town <laughs> as part of the contract. <laughs> wow. Absolutely bizarre. And uh, there is a connection with you. Ben uh, really? with this club because they are currently managed by former Reading Loney Gunnar Heider Thorvaldsen. Oh my goodness, that is such a blast from the past. Yeah, wow. it's completely bizarre. And and Reading have this. I don't, I don't know why. Again, Reading have this connection with Iceland. Yeah. Obviously, you've had Inga Marsen, Sigurdsson, Gunnarsson. Yeah, uh, you've had all the sons. Um, all the sons. I think they're all yeah. sons out there. That's yeah. mental. That is really, really? crazy. I've actually just recently read a book called Against All Elements, um, which is a fascinating read about the kind of emergence of Icelandic football. Um, So I'll have to pass that to you, Arthur. And if you're listening, do check that out. But Nigel Quasi in Iceland, that's a that's one heck of a combination. I I could have sworn he'd be a Tesco shopper. Yeah, maybe there are Tesco's out in Iceland, though. Maybe. Yeah. Sainsbury's, you know, all other brands exist. Once again, a big thanks for listening to The Eleven. Do give us a rating uh, on your favourite podcast app. We'd really appreciate that. And um, of course, if you support uh, an obscure foreign club and you've had a British alumni 
at 11 pod, the word, not the number, let us know. That was, um, that was a sort of nice little start, wasn't it, Arthur? Yeah, good little plug there. Good little plug. I yeah. mean, don't give a rating if you think we're rubbish, please. Actually, that's a really good point. I think we might have to put in, maybe if, if it's like above three, yeah, then great. No, I, I think above four. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, only five star, please. Oh, cool. We're maybe asking a bit too much. I think that's rooted out the people who are going to review. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Thanks anyway. Thanks for listening. Um, let's have two lethal marksmen up front in the Brits Abroad 11. Um, and let's start with one of the most bizarre pairings in this 11 so far. Luke Moore and Ella Zigspor. <laughs> he actually doesn't feel that Turkish football league. No, he doesn't, does he? I'm just going to say this. I, I do think Luke Moore was potentially one of the most underwhelming Premier League strikers of all time. I'm really sorry, Luke. I've nothing against you. He, he came through with his brother, Stefan Moore, uh, and he was a tempting cocktail of pace, directness and fearlessness. Indeed, in 2005-2006, he bagged eight goals for Villa in the Premier League at age 20. And you could say the world was at his feet with regular England under-21 appearances to boot. But for me, his feet were misplaced. Moore would be in and out of the Villa team for the next couple of years, registering a meagre return in front of goal, and would then become the sort of striker every manager thought could come in and add some quality, but was left feeling a little underwhelmed. Uh, And we're talking Premier League managers. Both West Brom and Swansea entrusted Moore with Premier League game time and were repaid with six goals in four years. Moore was out of options in 2013 and a move abroad beckoned. Turkish football was notoriously violent. Indeed, an Elazigspor game two years earlier had led to two deaths. But this didn't put Luke off. He moved to Elazig, signing a three-year contract. He'd be teammates with Marvin Zagalar and Yusuf Hadji. What wasn't to like? But it was disastrous. Moore played 17 times and scored zero goals. Ella Zigspor were relegated. And it sounds like there were also some financial issues with his contract. So a determined Moore plodded on in his foreign adventure. He went to Shivas, USA, played six, zero goals. And he finished his career in Toronto, where he'd fare a bit better, nine goals in 46 games for them. I I just became really intrigued by Ella Zigspor. They were a Turkish side that I'd actually never heard of. And reading a bit more, they actually hit the news after signing 22 players in two hours on the 30th of January. (laughs) I think this was a couple of years ago. They effectively were negotiating the end of a transfer ban imposed by the Turkish Football Federation. And when it was lifted... The club made a huge amount of transfers in a short period of time and that entered the Guinness Book of Records. And and sensationally, this was all done without the club even having a manager at the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, fair play to Luke Moore. um, Definitely one that could have made our unfulfilled potential 11. You know, that, that first season in the Premier League was phenomenal but it really tailed off his career. Um, so, you know, fair play to the guy. He, he played football. Uh, he had a fantastic career with it, but Ella Zigspor, probably not the best move. Yeah, I would agree. 
agree with that. And moving on from him to someone who had a slightly more productive spell at various stints abroad, it's Matt Derbyshire. He did, yes. Love that pick. He did. He's actually, uh, I, he's, a, he's a name that fills me with, um, with nostalgia. I, 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 you know, I loved Matt Derbyshire. Uh, I thought he was a fantastic <laughs> Premier League striker. Just didn't score much, but was a, yeah. a, a prospect as well. But I think he's actually quite well known for his Olympiakos move, um, simply because it was just quite, it was a, a period of time where there weren't any English people in the Greek Super League. He just felt, he, he just felt really reprimed for a stint out there, mm. I felt. Um, he first arrived on the scene in the Prem at Blackburn, um, having been an enormous prospect at youth level, he made a steady start to his career with 20 goals and 83 appearances. But that loan in 2009 to Olympiakos would change everything, as Derbyshire would find his horizons broadened and his goal boots well and truly found. His um, goal he, boots? Yeah. What are you, goal boots? You've never heard of goal boots? No. <laughs> <laughs> They're not a thing? I don't think so. It's shooting <laughs> boots, maybe. Yeah, that that makes but I, sense. But surely if you could have shooting boots, you can have goal boots as I well. Have, you can now. Yeah, cool. Yeah. We find it. He won the Greek League and Cup double. He played in the Champions League. He trained under the great Zico and netted the winner in one of the fiercest derbies uh, in world football versus Panathinaikos. Uh, so I think him and Luke Steele would have some scores to settle in this 11. He was instantly dubbed, as a result of that goal, the English killer. Wow. <laughs> Which is um, an unlikely sounding nickname for a sort of fairly slender, likeable Lancashire lad. He further cemented his place as an Olympiakos cult hero with the club's fanatical fans by coming off the bench to score twice in the 2009 Greek Cup final against AEK Athens. In the course of scoring the second, which was a late equaliser, he broke his nose and suffered concussion. Uh, so it just proves he's putting, he's putting his body on the line. Despite scoring 15 and 36 in Greece, um, he, were, he would return to England. Uh, he was goalless at Premier League releguees which is a term that I'm also coining. Relegies. <laughs> yeah, well, this is fantastic. It's like a... Relegation. It's, relegation. Like, it's like you're the foreigner on this, yeah, this it is stint a of the podcast. But releg- what would you say? Um, hmm. Premier League side who were relegated. Yeah. It doesn't be like a relegies. Relegies. Let's just do it. We'll go with that. Let's it's like attendees, it. but relegated. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he was goalless for Birmingham. Uh, in the Premier League. Uh, and after a few seasons of moderate scoring in the Championship with Rotherham, he had another stint abroad. He was picked up by John Carver's Omania Nicosia. <laughs> John Carver. <laughs> That's amazing. Is utterly bizarre. Um, their current players, out of interest, include Adam Matthews, formerly of Cardiff, Celtic and Charlton, and Gary Hooper, former Scunthorpe and Celtic goal machine. I love that. Um, which I, I found quite interesting. He was a massive hit there. He scored 24 in his first season, 23 in his second. He notched 62 and 113 in all. He said, if I'm being totally honest, 
I don't miss England at all. Obviously, I miss my family and friends, but everything else is great out here. I'm enjoying my football and my family enjoy living here. So it's all positive. I get asked quite a lot if other British players should go and play abroad. And from my own personal experience, I'd say players should definitely try something new. I know it can be difficult to settle in a foreign country, especially for people with young families. But my kids are having a fantastic time at school and learning in life. And you can relax away from football at the beach here and create so many special memories. So he had an absolute ball in Cyprus. Just bloody really nice. Soaring. Uh, he was happy. His family were happy. Everything was just going great. And he followed it up with another stint in, in, in football abroad. He played for MacArthur FC in Australia. He's got a very respectable 14 and 25. Uh, he was in the A-League team of the season. They've also got another interesting um, Brit abroad. They've got Craig Noon currently playing for them. Oh, my goodness. And uh, and he now finds himself at age 36 in the Indian Super League at Northeast United. Uh, he's scored 173 goals and 503 games in all in his career, which is a pretty pretty respectable total. And a lot of that was was plundered in the foreign leagues. So this is a Brit who just loved playing abroad. So let's return to that centre-back position that we didn't fill. It's up for grabs and we've got some fantastic nominations in. Firstly, I'm so happy to have Hannah Kumari uh, submitting a nomination to this podcast. She's so cool. She's a performer, a writer, a director and a producer who creates original theatre and film. Part of her work includes England, which was an incredibly successful play. She's got a rap musical about football coming out soon. She's been involved in a football opera. You really do have to check her page at Hannah Kamari to find out more about those things. Uh, but let's see who she nominates for our Brits Abroad 11 centre-back. So I was tasked with finding a centre-back for the Brits Abroad 11. The player I've gone with is from Hackney and his son is a professional footballer and actually plays for my team, Coventry City, although he's currently out on loan at Portsmouth. My centre-back had two spells for Nottingham Forest in the late 80s to early 90s and then again in the early 2000s, playing in seven cup finals for them and winning five. He had pace, he was physically strong and is considered to be one of the best markers of his time. He played just one season abroad in Italy under a future England manager in the 92-93 season after being sold for 1.5 million after the Euro 92 finals in Sweden. It's Des Walker. He went to Sampdoria and played under Sven Goran Eriksson. Hopes were high but it didn't work out with Walker being played mostly out of position as a fullback. And he returned to England the following season, joining Sheffield Wednesday for 2.7 million. Des Walker is my choice for centre back, not least because of his impressive collection of Player of the Year awards, picking up three at Forest and one at Sheffield Wednesday. Yes, Uncle Des, Sampdoria. What a combination. Uncle Des. Yeah, I just felt compelled to call in that. Wicked nomination, Hannah. Thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. And the second nomination is from North Section, who is a Scottish football blog. Uh, they've got lots of products on their site as well. Brilliant prints, T-shirts, bobble hats, all of all of the shebang. And you can follow them on Twitter as well, uh, at North Section. Uh, where they uh, they tweet some great stuff. So um, do give them a follow and let's see who they've nominated. Hello, my name is Fraser Cairns and I run the North Section website. 
My nomination for the Bricks of Broad 11 is former Scottish internationalist Richard Goff. Richard Goff made his mark on my hometown of Dundee when he was involved in the Dundee United League winning team of 1983, a team that also got to the next year's European Cup semi-final and lost in uh, controversial circumstances against Roma. As much as I'm a Rangers uh, from Dundee, I'm a Rangers supporter and Richard Goff was involved in all of our nine-in-a-row campaigns and he actually captained the club to all of those titles. Richard did have two spells in America, which qualifies him for the Brits Abroad eleven. one at Kansas City Wizards and one at San Jose Clash. Although he spent a short time abroad uh, in his football career, he was actually born in Sweden and raised in South Africa, but he did amass 61 Scotland caps between 83 and 93. So Richard Goff, someone that's sure to bring a smile on the face of, well, certainly Rangers supporters, and I think is a perfect nomination for year 11 that would shore up that back line. Yes, rather unsurprisingly a Scot, and uh, one that I'm a bit ashamed to say I didn't really know much about. So um, really, really good to hear that. Uh, from them thank you great level of obscurity there um i'm going to throw one into the mix arthur darren purse yes darren he was considered for my championship 11 yeah to be honest i actually can't think of a player that i'd less expect to have played abroad a no-nonsense bald-headed centre-back very solid at championship level well regarded at Birmingham and Cardiff, played in the Premier League for Birmingham and West Brom. Um, But prior to concluding his career in British non-league, he made an unlikely move to finish Vekas Liga club IFK Mariham. It didn't go brilliantly, uh, but by all accounts, Purse enjoyed it, saying what a great club they were on Twitter. Purse was, again, like uh, Samway, sent off quite early in his stint over in Finland. It is a, an incredibly remote football club, looking it up. Uh, it's the capital of the Ireland Islands, an archipelago with a population of just 30,000 people. So Perth would have shared the island with many Elks uh, and he'd have had to have crossed seas to get to away games. Um, and maybe it's that commute that put him off and sent him back to British non-league. But um, a cool story, nonetheless, that he played in Finland. A lovely pick. And I'd like to suggest a- another former Birmingham City player. It's Roger Johnson. Oh, nice. Yeah, former Wickham, Cardiff, Birmingham and Wolves centre-back. Once described by the Daily Telegraph as an inspiring defensive presence. He played a key role in that Carling Cup victory in 2011. He set Mm. up Nikola Zigic's opening goal in a 2-1 victory. Uh, Then in 2015, he signed for David Platt's Pune City in India. He said, I wanted something different. I played a long time in England, so this is a new challenge. The manager being English and the sort of players Puna was signing definitely influenced my decision. Joining Johnson that season was a support cast that is genuinely outstanding. <laughs> You've got Didier Zakora, got Nicky Shorey, Steve Simonson, Adrian Mutu, and Tunchai. <laughs> wow, what a team. Um, but despite that, they finished seventh out of eight. Oh, great. <laughs> I can't cool. believe it. Wow. That we um, yeah. But the uh, you explained all about the Indian Super League earlier. What a league it was at the time. 
Yeah, fantastic. Okay, head to Twitter at 11pod, the word, not the number. Your votes decide our other centre-back in the Brits Abroad 11. And Price have got to win this game again with Derbyshire. They might well have done. What a goal, Matt Derbyshire. What an absolute cracker. Well, I've really enjoyed this episode, Arthur. We've discussed... All sorts of countries, obscure and nostalgic footballers. Uh, on our bench, those narrowly missed out, a shout out to Owen Hargreaves, um, because I felt like his stint at Bayern Munich was so much more memorable than any time he played in the UK. That um, For me, he is the archetypal Brit abroad. He really is. Um, and, and also, I think Scott Carson's Birds of Spore spell. Yes, of course. Worthy of mention. Um, and actually, the my favourite, Brit aboard spell that I wanted to mention is it was a so brief his spell that I had to pick Derbyshire in head instead of him uh, but Tommy Mooney ending his career <laughs> as a 37 year old at UD Marbella <laughs> just so right <laughs> Tommy Mooney at Marbella love oh. that that's so good right running you through our Brits abroad 11 in goal it's Luke Steele at left-back, Scott Minto. Centre-half, Liam Ridgewell, and a choice of yours on Twitter. And at right-back, Andre Wisdom. Across the midfield, on the left, Stephen Pearson. In the centre, David Vaughan and Vinnie Samways. On the right-hand side, Nigel Quasi. And up front, it's Luke Moore and Matt Derbyshire. Such a potent strike force. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.